Hi everyone, this is the next episode in the Mike Oldfield discography podcast. The saga uh, continues. The saga continues and, and we're talking about Omadon. You know, like uh, chronologically, it would have been the Orchestral Tribular Bells, I guess. And we may do an episode on that one. Hmm. But right now, we feel that it really is not a Mike Oldfield record. In the sense that that it's you know it was 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 produced based on his initiative, which it wasn't. So yeah, Amadon, which is sort of like a lot of people say that Amadon is the greatest of all time and it's the best the best Mike Oldfield record. So uh, I'm really curious what you have to say about it, Tobias. It's not my favorite Mike Oldfield album. Um, that may not be interesting. I mean, there's reasons for that, but whatever we're going to say, one thing is sure that this album changed the way I think and I think about music. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard it very early on in my Mike Oldfield experience, but not in its entirety. The first time I heard it was on the uh, Music Wonderland compilation, and it had just the final eight minutes, I believe, of the first movement, which are arguably maybe the greatest section he's ever composed. Um, mm-hmm. Definitely it's... Um, the most intense and most passionate um, section he's ever done. And I think at the time I I knew Tubular Bells and that was it pretty much. And then I came to this piece and I think it had something which touched something in me which I didn't know was there. It had a darkness, it had um, yeah the, the passion, I think, the intensity. And there was something inexplicable because there were words, but I couldn't understand them. And the way he progresses through this music the level he was capable of reaching i think it made me want to go to that place again and again in other music mm-hmm. and be- probably because it relies so much on the listener not being prepared for it it's not repeatable in that sense mm-hmm. and i think many people who, who think omadan is the greatest thing he's ever done they keep looking for that and maybe he has tried to go there, but i think he's well aware that it's not possible to go to that place i mean in a sense he's become a different person and that that's why maybe some of the emotional uh intensity of that record cannot be replicated but also i think um once you've once you've gone through this experience the surprise effect is not there so one reason i think um and we will go into that when we talk about the music is why this is works is because there were two albums before this one mm-hmm. um which i think he plays with the expectations based on those two first ones but anyway it's changed the way i think about music i think um i whenever i hear something that um suddenly erupts i think of omelon it really it's really just the way it is mm-hmm. so it was incredibly important for me mm-hmm yeah, I don't. I I have to admit that I don't really remember much about when I first heard it, and so it's it's difficult for me to say. But it clearly is one. You know, I don't have any favorites mm. when it comes to Mike Oldfield, so that's that's really um, that's not a category that kind of like applies there. But there's a certain magic to the to the themes, to the way that that this whole thing is composed. There are, uh, again, like textures. Um, we, we mentioned that last time already. Textures that are really, really special and really unique. And also, you haven't heard before on any recorded music mm-hmm. or even orchestral music somehow. So it's really very creative in that sense. And he's just kind of like uh, technically just juxtaposing um, many elements and many musical ideas 
sort of like at the same time. So, so this sort of, like I say, this, this great thing that, that there is a, there's a huge world that exists and he has to strip it down in order to make it digestible. Mm-hmm. So, um, I like that a lot. So it's, it's as if you have a, a treasure, like a pirate's treasure <laughs> in a huge ship, right? And what, but what you present is just, uh, a curation of just like a, like a, like an amazing museum, right? Like you have a lot of things in your vaults and, but you only display certain pieces for a certain exhibition. And that's how I see Omadon, right? It's, it really is that, that incredible art show mm-hmm. where only the best pieces are being displayed. And that's sort of like how I think of it in terms of why people believe that it may be his best record. Because he's chosen a great exhibition, which is funny because like there is a, there was a documentary series uh, called, um, all you need is love. The filmmaker was visiting Mike in his studio and, uh, is interviewing him and so, and says something about, uh, I, I can't remember exactly, but anyway, like Mike says that when he's, when he's drunk, he's making an exhibition of himself. And I, I kind of like, I always found this to be so interesting because like that, that phase in his life musically mm-hmm. is sort of like the exhibitionist in a way and g- gave us amazing, an amazing piece of music. Right. But so that, that's also like why I'm wondering, like, uh, because, um, alcohol and drugs and stuff, stuff that I think Mike maybe even st- uh, tried to stay away from. By living that hermit life he did when he did Hergus Rich, right? And that's kind of like started to break open a little bit with him like going to the pub, with meeting with uh, Les Penning, uh, uh, those things, right? And then later on, uh, obviously just a few years later, um, he went into the opposite direction with uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, you know? But um, yeah, Omadon is, again, it's a record that has two sides, so it's the same format also returning to the format of Chibula Bells in a way uh, in in a way that uh, Hergus Rich wasn't returning to that so there's a third piece there's the little song on horseback at the end which just sort of like takes the place of uh, the sailor's hornpipe horn funnily enough right isn't it I think it's mm-hmm. it's kind of it's kind of cool and you have like the really distinct final section of side one just like uh, Chibula Bells has that as well it's even more, I, I see um, the parallel with Hörges Ridge in the fact that on Hörges Ridge he was condensing his music down into far less themes, which I think you could probably call curation, which is an interesting thought. Mm. And I think for this one, I mean, Hörges Ridge, um, we were debating last time how many themes are there. There are probably three to four themes on Hörges Ridge. Mm-hmm. But the first side of Omadon is um, actually, it's just one theme. It's That's, two. Well, we can probably argue about that, but, but I think yeah. when, when you listen to the I would be curious to hear what the second theme is then. But um, mm-hmm. if you listen to the um, last version, to me, the middle section is actually also a variation of the original, um, of, the, of the initial theme. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, like, like the, the metaphor I used with the, with, the, with the treasure, gold treasure, mm-hmm. right? Yes, everything is there at once. And you could say, okay, maybe that the, the, the combination of those elements is the theme. And I kind of, I kind of agree with that. So it's sort of like, uh, 
it's not one it's not a monophonic it's not just one melody it's the combination of two melodies <clears throat> yes. that may and and two kinds of harmonizations of those melodies that makes that makes the piece and that is the thematic material however the way that it is being presented is that these themes happen i mean like as you like in the demo yeah they happen at the same time and he's absolutely crazy with doing everything at the same time all at once but for the released version there is um there's a clear thing okay you have you have the the chanting like I'd say, and then on top of the chanting, you get the other theme played on on electric guitar <clears throat> yes. and stuff like that, right? So, and that's why that's why I would say it's two themes. And then side two, again, just like Tubular Bells and Hervis Rich introduces a third third yeah. theme or fourth even. You've, you've already hinted at the the personal background. It would be interesting for me to maybe start with that because I have thought about this. Um, reconsidered my own um, view of the making of process of that album, Armadon, um, because there is this um, story being told uh, partly by, by Mike Oldfield himself that Hergest Ridge was a very unpleasant creative process and led to an album which was dissatisfying to the public and himself, and that Armadon was a, um, an album which um, was... Um, beautiful to make and beautiful to listen to and everybody loved it and it brought him back. But looking, the, the thing is, on, if you look at it on paper, the thing is when he started work on Hergist Ridge, he had just released his first album. He had released it pretty much the way he wanted to without having to make any compromises. The album was a big success with the critics. It was a huge success in the charts, although when he started working on Hergist Ridge, it wasn't the huge, like the, 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 um, uh, the worldwide success yet, but it was big in the UK and it allowed him to move out of his whole um, apartment and into uh, a house um, of his own um, and live the life he wanted. And he could record a second album pretty much um, under his own conditions. And then um, Omadon was recorded after it released Hergist Rich, which was um, not a big success uh, comparatively to Tubular Bells, which had been panned by the critics. Um, and there were a lot of negative voices in the public. And it was recorded shortly after his mother died, which was a traumatic experience for him. Is that true? I mean, this this is something that I still don't understand 100%. Like when when did she really die? I, there are so many conflicting. Yeah. There's so many conflicting information. And only recently I heard an interview where he spoke of, of uh, 1976. Yes, he's, the, so, the chronology, is, in my opinion, is often changeling. But of course, I'm, I don't have the insights. So <clears throat> it says, basically, if you look at what, um, I have to look, look up what the, the name is, but the, I think it's the Mike Oldfield chronology. Yeah. Um, in that book, it says, he starts working on the album in January of, 50, of 75. Mm -hmm. And then the first draft of the album is finished in March. But his, according to this chronology book, his mother dies in January. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so the entire recording process, which takes until September, is under the influence of that. Well, in Changeling, he recounts the story thus in 1974. At Christmas, they meet for the very last time and he can tell she's very... Uh, in a bad state, and um, he hears about her uh, passing, and then shortly after goes into the studio and records the the solo at the end of the first mm -hmm. part. So, mm -hmm. but I think 
there are different parts in Changeling which don't, which seem to be off, especially with Omadon, because um, also the, when Jabula comes in to record their parts, that seems to be often in Changeling. So the way I see it, the entire album was recorded, most, pretty much everything was recorded after her passing, um, which would, I think, explain the tone of many mm-hmm. of, uh, a lot of the music. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes it makes sense, but like, you know, what we're doing here is not supposed to be precise science. No. And and we we and and just in this in this uh, particular instance, I really have to say, I, I really I'm really not sure. Yes, I'm not sure <laughs> either. But what what I can tell is that definitely Hergus Ridge was recorded when he should have been in a very happy place. And on paper, he I think when we look at interviews from the time, he speaks highly of Hergus Ridge. Mm-hmm. He's very satisfied with it. In fact, in the inter- in an interview with um, with Dallas, Kurt Dallas, he says. This is so good. I'm not sure if I want to keep on making music because how can I, what can come after this work? And then he goes a total, um, uh, makes a complete turnaround later and and, um, pretty much um, becomes his own worst critic. And also the Hergis Ridge was actually finished in pretty much half a year and Omodon took took longer actually to finish. Mm -hmm. So I'm just telling you that I don't think there is more to Amadon, I think, than than we ha- than this simple fact that um, this was a, it, everything came together. To me, I think what what this shows is where his real strength as a composer are, um, because the the thing that differentiates these two albums is that for Amadon, he was able to have his own studio at home to work on the pieces, and the, because the 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 the, the um, thematic material is so minimal. What he was working on pretty much clearly are the, what other people would call the arrangement, but for him it's more. I think the, the, the pleasure of working with music for him, I think, is making things come together into some, like a whole. And the way he's transformed Omadon over time in live recordings, which I'm, you're definitely the expert on, and you can, I think, talk mm-hmm. about that later on, because it, I've seen um, a few live renditions, the Nebworth one, that probably mm-hmm. completely blows me away. But it's so different, and each time he, but each version of the piece he comes up with is completely convincing, and so maybe the the reason why he um, recounts the story of Amadon coming into being as being such a happy process is because he was able to do what he loves most: working with the music, changing it around constantly in the studio, working with sound, working with uh, arrangement. Um, that's why we asked the the, the 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 lost version is a complete perfect piece in it in itself. It works perfectly. It's very different from from the mm-hmm. from the from the, the version which was eventually released. Mm-hmm. But I think um, it's it's yeah. way more it's way more experimental and could be seen as a demo, right? If you think about it now, it's it's it would be fascinating to think of it as being the final, you know, and it's, and you know because the story goes and this is another factor. That it's the the oil crisis that um, mm. that you know that the tape was bad and you know it was difficult to produce good vinyl and stuff like we know that that's a fact right I don't know how how much that was true for the tapes themselves but yeah and as you say like he got probably got like really manic about you know trying things out mm. and re- erasing and re-recording and blah 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 and um, with analog tape you can only do that a certain Amount of time, and if that if that is what happened, I mean, I I believe it because like that that version, 
that lost version really uh, is over the top uh, when it comes to the layering. Yeah. And it's it's funny how how he has stripped it down. And again, like my I like my metaphor so much. You have like your whole you have the whole world that you can present, mm -hmm. but you only pick a few special things that work well with each other. And again, in that um, All You Need Is Love documentary, uh, he plays the themes, you know, on it on acoustic guitar, and it's so moving. I find it mm -hmm. so incredibly yes. moving. Um, yes, it sounds sound beautiful. Actually, um, there's this very, very short s section in the lost version, which is that sort of, yeah. where he basically, everything disappears except for him and his guitar. That is incredible. Yes. Um, that... I actually prefer the last version to um, to the to the recorded version, which which only shows my listener preferences. It has nothing to do with the quality of the music. Um, there is um, when you, <clears throat> I think it could be the same documentary <clears throat> you're talking about, where he's shown in the studio, and in the background there is, I think, even a, a different arrangement playing. Um, I, I think it's the lost version. Could be the lost that version. That we hear in there. Yeah. Um, yes, I mean. What are your thoughts on the last version? As I said, it's probably to me, I, I prefer this one for various reasons. I think it's an amazing companion. One, if you know the, the, the original. Um, yeah, I mean, for me, for me, it doesn't, it doesn't compare in the sense that it's, it's just different. It's a different piece of music. Funnily enough, I mean, just like Platinum, Platinum, um, Deluxe Edition also has like a short, mm -hmm. like early version of one of, of the track Platinum, actually. Yeah. Right. And and they're also there. You can see that it just some some musical things haven't been perfectly worked out yet. So there are some still some wrong, you know, wrong notes um, notes that he changed later. And it's uh, it, that's like for me for me the the lost version is is sort of like that. Yeah, I, I I don't like the word demo because it's not a demo. It's sort of it's sort of like the. It's it's a process piece. That's how I would call it. Just like like um, I don't I don't know if he would ever see himself like that. But he is a, a piece of art, like mm. Oldfield is, right? And and he's in process. And that's why I love studying his discography. And that's why I love all the albums because they say something about the process that mm. that the person is going through somehow, right? Yeah. So and and so that's what that's what the lost version stands for for me. It's sort of like that's why the word "lost" makes sense because something that we didn't we didn't know for a while what that intermediate step was, right? And so it is very much a process kind of thing, and I like it. I like it. It's it's uh, it's really crazy. It's uh, it's over the top, um, and and it's just a different piece of music for me. I wouldn't I wouldn't even say it's the same piece. He, he actually referred to it as a demo himself. He said uh, in that interview, but there were lots of conflicting statements in that interview, so I'm not quite sure if we should actually, mm -hmm. like, we shouldn't pin him down on, on because he, we know that he isn't perfect with words, he's perfect with music. Yeah. But um, he did say when he listened to it, um, he, he discovered it was a demo. That's what he said, actually. He said oh, it was okay. a demo and okay. he was shocked. Mm -hmm. He also said, first of all, he had to do it because it was a bit damaged. And then um, later he said he would have done it, redone it either way. Right, okay. I mm -hmm. think he would have done it either way. Mm -hmm. um, there are many things I prefer, but what, what, I, what I think what this, what this is so interesting to me about the demo, is, uh, sorry, about the lost version is 
it gets better or things which get better from the one version to the later one is are the ones where he involves other musicians mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. i think the 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 final section of the first movement which is so overwhelming that's something which came about through playing in the studio together as a group um with other musicians so maybe and that's I, I, is, dude, are you sure that that's that that happened well, I, I don't know it's the way he describes I, it in, i i don't i don't i don't think so i mean i'm even even starting to wonder if if this um the drum the drum beat yes the jabula beat um is actually the first occur occurrence of a loop on his on That's one of question. his records I'm, i think it is well the, the question is in the last it, version it's a tape it's a, i'm pretty sure yeah. it's a tape okay. loop. so it's just just i don't know two or three bars um like there are two versions mm-hmm. there's the faster and the slower right so yes. the so the so I think it's just a, it's a two bar loop or something. I really think so. Well, it's interesting because I've been really um thinking and thinking about this. The the last version has has sort of the basic rhythm idea. It doesn't have the full beat yet. Mm-hmm. So was this recorded by Jabula or was it rec- is that himself or some other session musician playing the beat? Um but your explanation would make sense mm-hmm. in the way that he then re- he just um, erases everything, goes back to it, mm-hmm. and then comes uses different aspects of the same recording. I mean, uh, like I'm pretty sure that on the lost version, it's Pierre Marlin playing the timpani. Yes, the timpani. Yes. Yes, which which is which is obviously is not is not on the final version. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Interesting. That's... It is. It is. It is interesting. I mean, like, we, we, I mean, maybe people would expect us to <laughs> to, <know. laughs> to to know or to analyze this properly here in this in this conversation. But no, that's not what this is about, right? In, I so, mean, so. he said in Changeling, he describes it as a one continuous session spread out across many hours of one day, where he um, serves alcoholic beverages to the musicians. Until they reach a trance state. Actually, it's uh, marijuana that I think he's referring to. With, <laughs> but but anyway, I think yeah. I mean, I believe him. Like so so, and with him having such a strong vision, so he maybe just you know clicked with that with that beat, and then you know grabbed a few bars of that, and actually like yeah. the fade out <clears throat> to me sounds like just one bar looped. Yes, that sounds right. like it, and it's yeah. and on the on the boxed yeah. version, which is actually very which is not that different, but slightly different. Mm-hmm. It takes forever. It's yes, almost two yes, minutes. It's, yeah, it doesn't yeah, end. Yeah, I it's love like that. It's, it's almost like I had to check several times. Is, is this a locked groove mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the record? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's um, you see. I I think that the the real beauty of this, and, uh, and we haven't mentioned it yet, but, but people say that that album is sort of also the beginning of of sort of like this westernized version, this western concept of the world music album i mean like i don't i don't i don't see it like that but i i I guess i mean i understand what people mean because there's you have instruments that are sort of associated maybe with irish music like a harp you know and um, you have the uh, classical guitars Mm. um, sounds like that and you have the african drums 
and then and you have flute, you have recorders, yep. um, you have a cello. Uh, funnily enough, like you know, a cello making an appearance on a Mike Oldfield record, which has mm-hmm. only happened like one other time, I think, mm-hmm. um, on Triple Bass Three. Um, but they okay, okay. There's there's the string, there's the double bass on on tubular bells. So like, but anyway, like when this when the cello comes in, for example, that's really a moment of wow. I mean, yeah. like we wouldn't expect the sound. A little bit like the like the trumpet in um, not so much the oboe, but the trumpet in in Herbis Ridge. Yeah, and um, the bagpipes. You didn't because that the bagpipes. Yeah. yeah, a big big part of his of his. Um, work that's yet to come and again on Trudel Bells he did the bagpipes on guitars right and then he could could afford to have uh, Patty Maloney you know beautifully playing that that theme Um, sad song for Rosie right and again yeah like that's on the second side and that is like one theme that doesn't seem related much to the to the other themes or to the other to the theme of side one but then, when you look at the version where he plays the themes on acoustic guitar in that documentary, you can see that there's also pretty much a relationship. It's a finger style mm-hmm. uh, a piece for for acoustic guitar, right? And so there's the it's 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 wonderful, and yeah, you know, there's uh, I think we mentioned that um, ornamentation of melod of melodies is a big. Factor mm-hmm. not really so much in tubular bells, but Thomas Ritchie starts to really use all sorts of uh, ways to to ornament melodies, and that sort of continues um, here in this in this record. Yeah. Like I mean, like really, if you wanted to do justice to this record, we would have to have a round table with like mm-hmm. eighty people that uh, talk about it and give yeah. their give their impressions. So. Um, so I'm I'm I have to say I'm surprised that you say that it's not your favorite record because like for me I would say it's definitely one of my favorites even though I don't have favorites because like this it's un, it's it's undoubtedly not just a masterpiece but a masterpiece of masterpieces. Oh, I agree. Um, you know, I, so. <laughs> the, the funny thing is that it, it is a masterpiece of masterpieces and it's still not my uh, one. Of, <laughs> yeah, it's. Let me put it this way: Among, I do have favorites. I think um, I think the word favorite is sort of um, a relatively. It's just a subjective term. Yeah. It doesn't. I don't make any statements about the quality of the music. It's just of the four first albums, this is my least favorite. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just the one I, mm-hmm. and probably one of the reasons is because it is so. It was, the first few times I listened to it was so overwhelming that that sort of that effect is overwhelming. I mean, the the difference to me. Between, for example, Omadon, the experience of Omadon and Hergis Ridge is in Hergis Ridge and Tubular Bells, he's creating musical worlds which he can escape to. Mm-hmm. And in Omadon, he is channeling his inner world out. So mm-hmm. it's, an, it's an explosion rather than an. Oh, uh, I agree. You know? Yeah, I agree. So, and, and just on a, on a formal level, I've always thought the, the, the album was sort of a bit lopsided. It has a like, very, this, this, this big one movement piece on the on the first side mm. and the second one is shorter and i think th- there's an asymmetry and there's nothing wrong with asymmetry i just don't particularly like it and i like i always thought the conclusion of the second movement was unsatisfying mm. um 
I know several people who love the end of the first um, second side yeah. um, movement. Um, my my partner think that's the best part on the whole record. She loves that part. Mm -hmm. um, but I just thought it takes me out of 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 the mood of the of the piece. Mm -hmm. um, I think the, the the second side starts off great and then the, the folk part the middle the middle part of that is just so beautiful mm -hmm. and then um i don't know it, it he becomes it goes into this dance i don't know it's it's just a preference mm -hmm. whereas the the horseback piece returns to it again mm -hmm. and it's just beautiful i cannot understand why anyone would have anything to say about the lyrics or the music i think this is just the dream this is yes. dreamly beautiful yes this is preference i just think um um, I always thought it was this asymmetry. The, the, the first side is so much more weighty than the second side. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's true in a way. You know, like in, in general, I think if we look at Armadon, it, it really uh, is sort of like an introduction of so many ideas, so many incredible things that sort of like point to the future that he's doing. And and I'm talking talking both compositionally and sonically and conceptually, uh, also uh, on a human level, right? As you said, like there are uh, like more like external musicians playing on it. His brother is mm. playing with him on that record. Yes, know? important. Um, and so yeah, and, and, I, and actually, I, I I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think he plays the pan flute part, like, and that that sort of like contributes also to this world music thing that there is actually a pan flute, <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's it's like as you say, it's an explosion, it's sort of like a firework uh, works of ideas, and that's why the second half for me kind of like makes sense again because it's like presenting he's pre presenting some new ideas, also um, um, the penultimate bit before the finale has the has the the fast triplety guitar solo which is mm. which is sort of like become also one of his trademark things yeah. or that it's like a signature it's like a signature thing and there are so many of those signatures in this in this record and i think it's just <clears throat> gorgeous the whole thing the whole thing and um, like talking about the finale of side two before on horseback i also think that that is probably a drum loop there and and also it's the first where he does the uh the bow run the the drum mm -hmm. the drum rhythm right so it's it's and he plays it in a way that is kind of like oh has also is also like a signature sound oh, yeah. um and <clears throat> and it's funny because i also pay attention to things like okay so is a beat late is a beat early like how does 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 the musician or oldfield in this case like create a groove Right, and he does that. That some notes are late, and and then I'm looking for okay, is this is this note just is it late on purpose? And I can tell if something's late on purpose if it repeats in the same way. And then the question is okay, if it repeats in the same way, was it played that same way twice, or was is it a copy and paste? Is it a loop? And I find it fascinating that on Omadon is like the really is the first time where you can identify things like that. I don't think that anything like that was present on Harry Stridge. No. Pretty sure not now. Yeah. So. But how do you explain the tempo shift um, in the first movement towards the end? Is that um, is it just spliced? Yeah. This uh, that that I'm that I'm not sure of. I don't know. It's also like if you have a tape loop, you can speed it up, right? Don't forget that. So if you have a percussion loop, you can speed it up. It doesn't 
really mm. i mean digitally you would uh, i mean nowadays it's not an issue anymore but like uh, if, if you speed it up analog in an analog way it just sounds still sounds natural if it moves up mm. like a half step or something and it's faster that's sort of like the advantage of having a digital uh, an analog recording of a percussion track of a percussion loop because you can slow it down and speed it up uh, without it losing too much of its yeah. character. Do you have an idea what this bar, uh, yeah, or, um, pub conversation in the last version, what, that, what the idea behind that is? I'm really uh, at, at loss a bit because like structurally, I mean, it moves similarly to the first, to the final, final version. Mm -hmm. And there is a finale and there is a big finale. It just resolves differently. Mm -hmm. um, but this, this conversation running in the background, that's really very curious. You, you call it experimental, but I'm, but I'm just. So I'm, I don't know, but this, this essay, 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 uh, yeah. right? So it's, I think it's a, it's a sort of, an, I, I, I mean, I don't know. It's sort of like a, uh, a joke that's a form for a joke it's a formal yes. formal joke you could say a form of joke and um i know that there are some people who are, who went absolutely crazy kind of trying to decode it mm -hmm. to uh really see it as sort of like a riddle and um and i don't know i mean to me it's really it's really um a bit like the piltdown man right yeah. so so the idea of this craziness, and we, I mean, we haven't mentioned that, what Amadon, you know, mm. Gaelic means fool, right? And so, and the, the line, uh, uh, the last line of the lyric is uh, the fool of music, right? And, and so that is the fool, you know? Yeah, it's Dallas, the fool. Dallas right? says um, it translates sort of to fool or simple man mm -hmm. and says it's it's Mike Oldfield as the simple man and, and not overthinking it. Not, you know, it's maybe that is already too far-fetched, but... Um, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know, you know, being a, a musician or artist myself, I resonate very much with that, with that idea of the fool of music because you realize that you are, you are kind of like putting yourself into a position of total weakness uh, as a creative person and, and as somebody who is so um, uh, fragile, you know, you, mm. you're making yourself, you're putting yourself into this fragile state and and it is foolish. Like other people would say, it's foolish. And, mm. and, and but like from this, from this position of the fool, this beautiful, incredible, playful, mm. uh, this, you know, like... Um, a quest of discovery kind of like starts that's the process i was talking about and and that's why this album is sort of like for me this incredible um uh, it's it's incredibly brave to put yourself out there like this and with the lost version he actually went to the place where he said okay this is almost this is the this is the fool music and and i'm gonna play the fool here so i'm gonna actually voice it you know i'm going to give it a voice and that's what's happening there on that version and it's uh, that's what makes it absolutely powerful you know it's it's it is crazy it's nothing like the the album the version that was released no but it's it's I, uh, maybe it's both i mean as you said you're exposing yourself in the released version he's exposing his complete vulnerability and fragility yes and exactly. his pain and the other words version he's um exposing the nakedness in a, like in the opposite way but it's still the same nakedness 
Like I, I just, I you know, I already said it's over the top. The over the topness, he just toned that down, and that made made it even more over the top in terms of the emotional response that people had to it. And so it was a very good call, a very good, very good thing that it happened the way it happened. And I love the lost version, but like I say, it's a com it's a completely different piece of music for me because of that. Um, yeah, that 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 the restrictions are looser yeah. there, right? In a way, maybe um, as I said, the outside world is coming in through different musicians. Maybe it's also that the the other in the other cases, um, the music was the refuge, but here the people are the sort of the creates that sense of. Um, The warmth. Um, his brother is in there. You mentioned it. Um, there's um, um, the, the rosy part is from Saliangi with his sister. So it's from the past, maybe from a time when things were happier. Um, and then um, the, the the Dublin is in there, which have which were an influence for a very long time. So the, so there's things from his past in there, which maybe create a sense of of um, of home. Um, in the way the, the music came together, which could also be an explanation why it felt so good making it, because there were people. And, and obviously, Claudia Simmons um, and, um, and some of the other musicians, they contributed, and there was a real exchange. These were people he respected and uh, who respected him, and they came up with incredible musical creative solutions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that again, like, this is something that I'm, I don't, Again, like there's so many things that I don't know. Yeah. I don't know in how far um, the musicians contributed parts, right? Did they contribute performances or did they contribute parts? I know that later in like in the early 80s, the musicians he worked with, they were allowed or they were actually even utilized to contribute parts, um, which everybody then always attributes to like Mike, which is the way it, it happens, right? <laughs> but anyway, um, but with Omadon, I'm not so sure, you know, if there's, if there's any, if there was any freedom for the people who contributed other than the way that they played things rather than what they played. Um, a fascinating thought, right? To think of it as a, as a, um, as a collective work. I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> Quite honest. Really hard. I mean, your thoughts yeah. now um, are definitely interesting for me as well because um, after reading his, he's 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 um, actually um, complimented and uh, mentioned a few of the collaborators with coming up with ideas. Um, yeah, I mean, also William Murray is. Um, we definitely need need to mention him. Yeah. You know, so they they spend a lot of time together there and. William wrote the lyrics to On Horseback, as far as I understand. Yeah, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's just, we'll never really know, I guess. And it doesn't, doesn't really, I mean, does it matter? Yeah, it, it would, would be interesting to know, but um, the music speaks for itself. And for me, this, like you say, the, this disbalance, right, of side one and side two, for me, um, for me, it is really, like more so than other albums of his that have two sides mm -hmm. here it is it really is one one piece in the sense that it goes from a to b there's not not so much of a 
of the of a relationship of the two sides as mm -hmm. being sort of the two sides of the same coin. No, here it's really it's as if there's only one side to the coin, but it's a very complex image on the coin, mm -hmm. right? That's sort of like how I see it. And and it's not really wrapping up in the sense that uh, like the Sailor's Hornpipe wrapped up tubal bells on a yes. like, with a funny thing. Like like um, and like you know, beautiful that um, you have the words Herbie's Ridge. Yes. You know, if you feel a little grasp, yes. you know, like in the song. I think that's very that's, meaningful, even yeah, though it's not yeah. intended to be meaningful. Yeah. It is meaningful. It says yeah. something, yeah. Yes, yes. And it has like, it has, it's this beautiful, sad song, like where he's also talking about, I guess, about himself, about, you know, that he sometimes feels like he wants to hit his head on the wall. Hmm. And um, it's, it's sort of so personal, so beautifully uh, innocent and open and yeah. and really like there's so much heart in in his music yeah. and and you know like that's also why i think that all the when you say that the critics blah, blah what what the fuck i mean critics what what have critics to say like they they sort of they meet in, in listening to those records meet like one of the greatest minds in music or you know or hearts in music and and you have to criticize it and say this the one is better than the other. It just really, like, especially in hindsight, is so ridiculous, mm. uh, <laughs> you know. And I understand why, you know, like he, as a very young man, and sort of like removed from reality, also with the success and and you know, like it kind of happens that you you become so incredibly, you can get so hurt by people saying mm. things that you know that like where you are just really really. Um, sort of acting and that's why fool makes so much sense you're like acting foolish you know in the in the way that you actually provide provide materials for other people to be, get happier or to come over their 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 problems let's say um so it's like a very therapeutic piece of mm. of substance in the world let's <laughs> just put it that way right and and so people can utilize it for themselves but at the same time as the artist you're making yourself so you know you can be, get hurt so so badly and somehow that is really uh omadon still has that innocence to it mm -hmm. um and i find it's just just so moving can i ask you on a personal note is was this album important to you as a guitarist because you have the, the this incredible solo at the end of the first movement mm -hmm. um and the guitar tone of that and the um the way he bends those notes and really To, to the point where they almost seem to explode. And mm -hmm. um, on the second side, we have this mass of guitars stacked on top of each other, almost 2,000 purportedly guitar, um, mm -hmm. layers of guitars. And it has this sort of shifting textural quality, which are both parts, elements of your own work in a way. Yeah. Um, so is that, yeah. was the album important to you, do you think? I, I, I'm pretty, pretty sure. Um Yeah, I mean, and these like like are two almost two opposing things, right? Yeah. So you have the totally textural uh, um, sort of generative idea yeah. of 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 overdubbing, so something new yeah. happens, right? And and he's doing a lot of like these little 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 things, and and those are and that that yeah. creates on the beginning of side two, and that gives that gives this this shimmer this shimmering sound, right? Um, Yeah, I mean, that certainly influenced me a lot. And it was at the same time, actually, like uh, No Pussyfooting with Rip and Eno yeah. record where 
with tape loops, like you get the same kind of like effect. Um, um, anyway, yes, and I mean, obviously, Frippinino and also Amadon are very important to me. And then the lead playing, the lead guitar playing, which is really like, I don't think there's anybody who plays like that or play like that, you know? Um, and, and that, that aggressive, um, aggressive vibrato and aggressive, um, Exp exp I mean, the expression, I mean, yeah, expression is the word, right? It is something that um, I don't think it feels like I, I have a really hard time getting to that place, to putting myself into that place um, mentally when I'm playing. Um, like maybe in the last few years life, I've been able to sort of like gather that kind of energy and do something similar. But it's really, it's really so incredibly unique and you know, it kind of like the idea is to use the instrument as your as your voice, but not as a speaking voice or not as a singing voice, but as a as an outlet for you know that primal scream kind of idea. Yes, right. And and that's that's sort of like what what he's been doing there. And the funny thing is, like if you think about it, in classical music, even though classical music tries to do that. Right, so you would have like, say, you would have a violin concerto or some, whatever something, right? And the violin could be the lead instrument doing something like that. But there's almost, almost always this stylistic or taste boundary, let's say, where you wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't really go that far. Yes. You would, but you would do that in folk music. Yes. In fo you know, and that's why Amadon is so incredible because it brings together like this, this like the <clears throat> the essence of everything in a way. And allows for that totally over the top pushing the bow to the strings on a violin. Yeah. That's that kind of aggression, and and yeah, it's, it's incredible. You know, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah, he really and goes it, to places others are either afraid or too cool or whatever to go. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that that makes this what you call the explosion there. You know, also also this really great idea to have the so it's basically just a rhythm that's just just content sixteenth notes, right? Yeah. And where the acoustic guitar is strumming those sixteenth notes in a in a really aggressive way, and and the bass is playing that that sixteenth note riff, mm -hmm. you know, and and you have um, like harmonically again, it's like it's super cool because it's sort of using using the Phrygian Phrygian mode with the flat mm -hmm. the flat two, and and it's really it's really it's incredibly cool, you know. But as you say, it isn't. It here, and you know, another important thing. Like he really moves away from the bluesy aspects on this record. Yes. Like where you know, Tubular Bells has quite a lot of rock and roll in it. That's also why the orchestral version doesn't work. I think uh, Herb Stritch he completely kind of like goes uh, goes to the other side where we know that the orchestral version is quite a success, right? Yeah. And and but he still has bluesy guitar lines on top, right? And here now with Omadon, that is is it uh, that bluesy aspect just isn't there anymore. Again, maybe contributing to the feel of the world music album. Yep. Interestingly, he was uh, recording quite a bit, uh, sort of more traditional stuff in the background to Armadon. In 1975, um, 1975, yeah, there was a lot of that going on for different other projects, but not in the music on of his own um, um, recording. Yeah, and 
uh, again, like we haven't mentioned David Bedford yet, and I don't think he's officially uh, associated with that album. No. The collaboration work they did together, The Odyssey, right? Mm. Uh, for example, and I don't know what, which in which year that was released, but uh, First Excursion, for example, like really that that is the guitar sound, mm -hmm. and that that is the guitar sound that that um, is the Omadon sound, and then later on, kind of like returns a little bit on uh, Platinum, on Incantations, mm -hmm. he doesn't use. Uh, that particular kind of sound much or even yeah. at all it's it's really interesting i have to say yeah and there you know there are some some sort of like there's a soundtrack to a, a film which is called reflection uh, which has early versions of incantation stuff it has uh, the woodhenge track that kind of showed up on platinum later it has uh, it has some parts of omadon like different mixes and it's really it's really interesting uh, to see that a lot of the things that we experienced or, or learn about as separate entities separate albums separate phases sort of like come from the same a creative yes creative uh, how should I say period yes in his life right um, I think this the, the term world music is is, is wrong because world music um, already a silly um, term, but um, that is really. I think the, the the interesting thing is that for this one we have lots of um, the fusion isn't by juxtaposing things, but it's it's all one thing. Um, so it's called it's, this, it's an African band playing the beats, um, but he said later on that Ravi Shankar was just as much an inspiration for the drums. Um, mm -hmm. And I always had an, the Indian association myself. Um, and there's all these different elements and it's it's blended into one. It's not about contrast. It's about color uh, and about um, realizing a certain idea. He said as much. I mean, it's, I think it's pretty clear to him that he wasn't trying to break new ground or establishing a new genre. I think it's just um, whatever makes the music come out better. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And and the cool the cool thing about those those days is that it was um, way before the digitalization of um, music electronic, <clears throat> yes, you know the capabilities, and so this this combination of these different sound colors really um, really is is very organic, let's say. Yes, right. Incredibly so organic. so and that's that's why it sort of works so well. Like on later albums, he has does he's done things like this, and and they are kind of like bizarre, like Five Miles Out, Taurus Two, for example, mm. as an example, like this super bizarre combination of of, yeah. of technology and sounds, and I love it, I absolutely love it. But but here with Amadon, it's still it's still like digestible to the. Uh, Mainstream. There are actually person. live live renditions of Omadon with the, with the um, electronic uh, Simmons drums and um, yes, then yes. There he goes, sort of. He takes that the music that place. Yes, yes, exactly. That was in '83, I think. Yeah, yeah. I was also thinking about the guitar um, part. That um, as dramatic as the um, the finale is of the first side. There's also sort of a self-comforting feeling because I think it has, if you listen to it on headphones, you can hear that it is actually the melody 
which is fluent if you listen to it sort of in a stereo setting. It doesn't really uh, track that much. But on headphones, you recognize that there's actually there's a call and response going yes. on. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it has this sort of, there's a question and then there's a comforting answers. And it's as though he's speaking to himself and comforting himself. Yeah. Um, and this is this pull and pull and push and uh, tearing and um, and releasing. That is what makes it so special. It's not just um, a wild guitar solo. It's sort of an inner dialogue and we're being allowed in and experiencing it ourselves. So you, you, it's an inner turmoil, but it's also a soothing voice. That is, that is, I think, what also makes it unique. Totally, totally. And, you know, I've, you just reminded me that Omadon, like the right? There is like the funny, in, I think in 81, on the 81 tour, <laughs> he, he played, they played uh, um, Punkadiddle. <laughs> and at the end, it was just, just him with the guitar improvising. And he actually goes there. He goes <laughs> to that Omadon thing, right? And, and builds that into the, the improvisation, like kind of like cheesy kind of way to, thing to do. But it's sort of like the audience participation part of the show. <laughs> And um, funny, yes, you're right. So it's not really that um, totally dark or serious or anything. It has, again, it's the fool, right? So it has that it has that character of being lighthearted while being while being serious. You know, there is a connection with him to this to this piece. If you look at the Nebworth um, gig, we have that on video, and you can see the complete concentration. There's, there's, I mean. There's no way he could, for example, there's the drum solo and he's, or there's solos by other musicians and he's in full concentration while they're playing. Mm-hmm. There's not even the effort of entertaining the crowd or diverting them in any way. No, he's waiting for them until he returns. And there's the moment when, um, before they go into the, in the overdrive and he's literally, uh, he's counting them in. Mm-hmm. And he's screaming it out. Yes. He's really saying, one, two, three, four. And it's, yeah. um, that's not play. That is complete in the momentness. And I, I have heard, I have heard a story about the Napworth performance. Um, apparently, like, obviously that, that band had like 10 people in it or yes. something. And it was quite, I, I think that it must have been like a really stressful day. And there was sort of like, an argument and soundcheck took a long time and blah 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 and really bad vibes and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. I heard I heard that from a few people, and um, and so you can kind of like see that like the that is sort of like the performance of the band, but also like Mike's performance in particular. Yes, it's like it's like the last time I'm playing. Oh, okay. That's that's what it feels like to me. Like the first frustration, right? like frustration of like I can't do this anymore. Like and as as you know, as we know, like he's very much about trying to make things work so that his music translates, right? So like he knows that things if things go wrong, it's not going to work, and so he's very tense. You can feel that, and and that tension, and that's exactly what why Omadon, what Omadon is great for that that release of tension, and he really goes. You can see you can see it in his physique, you know, how he's going to that place of of sort of in in inverted commas hating the world yeah. and and like letting letting that all out and it's incredible it's like it really is the ultimate performance of that part 
which really, like on the record, if you listen to the record in comparison, is nothing. Strangely, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, hard to believe. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and it's 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 incredible. Like you know, the net worth um, festival performance. That's the one that you know. That's the Armadon that people need to listen to. I think so. Yeah. 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 Also, the drum solo. It's not a, not even a drum solo in a way. It doesn't feel like this typical drum solo. It's just. I mean, it's Primaland, so it's not it's not a solo in the traditional sense. Yeah. It's a composition also, and but it it kind of like goes from from being the assault of like four percussionists playing to just yeah. Pierre playing on the drum kit for a minute or two, and it's just it's just incredible. Insane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. From you, you've probably listened to um, a lot of these. Which which other ones would you recommend me or any listener um, to check out of, of Omadon specifically, if if there are any? Uh, yeah, there's there's the Roskilde version, Roskilde Festival from mm -hmm. '82, which is recommended. In particular, it's the uh, Taurus II and Omadon, mm. but it's it's very hard to find acceptable versions. Like you, you know, with with bootlegs of that time from that time, you really have to be uh, forgiving and just listen for the music and not for the sound. I mean, funnily enough. Like the very last time he performed in 2006, I mean, mm -hmm. before the, the Olympics, um, 2006, um, that was the Nokia Night of the Proms or something, right? And they played Amadon and it's actually pretty good. Really, really kind of like, hmm. it's sort of like an orchestral yeah. plus band version and it's really good. Uh, unexpectedly <laughs> good. <laughs> uh, but there were also, there were also, um, Kind of like this, you know, not so satisfying versions. But it really, it really, the funny thing is, like, um, you know, there are board recordings, there are, there are um, audience recordings. Um, there's very little official material. Yes. Yeah. I mean, on the the uh, Crisis Deluxe Edition, there is there is the um, the Wembley Arena show, which also has an incredible version of 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 a Madonna. So, but but anyway, so those are those are the ones that are. I mean, you have to kind of like really get deep into the into the catalog of bootlegs mm. and find the versions. And um, I remember there's like a Hanover show from '81, yes. which is which is also great. That's available, I think, as a, an unofficial. Yes. Uh, yes. They put, yes. 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 Definitely, it's different from the other pieces in that he, um, I think, often chooses to sort of truncate it or reduce it even more down. It's more of a even condensation into the um, the latter part of that. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think there there ever was a performance of the whole of yeah. whole side one. I don't I don't think so. Uh, and there, has there ever been a performance of side two at all? Probably not, right? In fact, I don't I don't know of any. No. No, not not even not even a theme makes an appearance. No, that's that's totally just a studio thing. Mm. Funnily enough, though, um, in 1982, uh, his band played excerpts from Incantations and Hergest Ridge, mm -hmm. uh, and they play the like the the the. The stormy section of Fergus Ridge with the band. I don't know if you've ever heard I that. I haven't heard it yet. Yeah, yeah, I, I can send you a few links to that. It's it's really it's really funny. It's incredible. So they and the Spanish Spanish tune they play mm. actually in '82. So there there are these rare gems. Um, but with Omadon, I think there may the um, the Roskilde version may actually be a complete version of side one. 
Okay. But in, in uh, the net worth version, for example, a chunk is cut out mm. in the middle. Maybe one thing which I've also remembered now um, is that I wanted to go to this thing I mentioned about um, the expectations. Um, that's what, because we're talking about the live performances and the live performances, they have less of this um, development. They have, they jump right in, especially the net worth gig. That is so great because it's, He's um, he's drawing the tension because he's he's separating the thing even more into smaller sections, and he's, every section has its own character. Yeah. Um, but the but the um, the album version, I think, is what drew me in so much is that because when you come from Tubular Bells, there is a finale in Tubular Bells, but it's not this like this huge um, thing. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a hypnotic trance state, mm-hmm. and. Um, and at the beginning of this of the, of the first movement, he sort of he already brings it to a conclusion, the thing, mm-hmm. but it's sort of understated. And then um, he goes away from it by putting it, uh, transposing um, it into major, um, and then introducing the folk theme, um, and then he comes back almost with the finale. But then he cuts it. The beat is in there, but he cuts it, and then he builds it up again. And then the bass comes and the bass disappears and it's only drums and vocals. There's this constant thing. Is it going to, is something going to happen or is it not? And then, then it comes. And I think this expectation is because in Hergis Rich, he, he precisely did not do that. He did not make it come out. He, there's the, the thunderstorm section, but it's sort of a, it's not, it comes as a total surprise. Mm-hmm. And in, and in Hergis, in, 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 um, Omadon, he's, he keeps you waiting for, 15 to 16 minutes under complete suspense. Mm-hmm. And because in Hergis Ridge, he totally did not deliver on that, on sort of the, um, the, the tension. Here he does. And I think that is also one thing which I think works because there was something before it. It's not taken out of context. It's, it's one, it's p- part of the continuum. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then it goes out of it because um, he, he actually gives you something which you were waiting for all the time and then he gives it, but he gives it to you better than you could have ever imagined. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, mu- musically, and, and this is worth mentioning, um, it is it is really the record that shows that um, his thinking about like harmonization of melodies and harmonization of, you know, and, and sort of like a mix of sort of a uh, triadic harmonization where versus like drones, like like the yeah. sort of like with the bagpipes, you have the drones always the same and, and and you get like two moments with the, the main theme, right? So after the the the, the A theme and the the introduction, right? And then it goes da, 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 mm-hmm. and you have that 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 one looped choir note mm-hmm. uh, on top, right? And it stays, it's suspended, right? It's suspended yeah. there and with the tension. And then the second time around, in the middle, it moves to it yeah. to the con- more consonant note, which is incredible, right? And so so he plays with with uh, with 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 harmony in a really um, very free way. Also, where the melodies uh, the melodies they don't need to land on chord tones. Mm. Right, so he does, and and so, so he does both at the same time. So he has melodies that you do use the chord tones sometimes, almost like exclusive, exclusively, like the chant, right, which is only chord tones. But then the melody on top, it's like, yeah, yeah, and and it doesn't, it doesn't, it's just, it's just a theme, it's a motif that stands on its own that doesn't have to have a relationship with 
the chordal structure. So it could work with any chord from that key, let's say, right? And and so um, in addition to that, on Amadon, he also leaves out the chord. I remember seeing like there is there is a, a book, a score book called Ten, which was released in eighty two, I think, which has um, also the finale of Amadon uh, transcribed, and it does has that introduction like the, those eight bars of introduction with a pen flute and then i see i still remember seeing that in the in the in the in the, in the score n dot c dot which means it stands for no chord hmm. so that first round of the yes. melody has no chord hmm. that's true and 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 it's incredible like then we um I think I've mentioned that um, he doesn't use many dominant seventh chords mm -hmm. in his work, but the the xylophone that comes in under the chant, right, actually uses dominant seventh mm -hmm. in in a really interesting way. And again, that is sort of like a mutation of the way the chords were used earlier on in the piece. And it's it, yeah, I mean, it, it's just totally fascinating. Um, this this freedom and and you know like the um the mid there's like this middle section between the chant and the explosion at the mm -hmm. end and there's the trumpet in, yes. in the background and the trumpet is playing these dissonant notes yes. <laughs> incredible i think it's a i think it's a it's a it's a g right that just the dissonant note and it's really yeah, you would say like, why? You know, why? Why is that happening? Why does he do that there? Why is that? And it's it's clear because like the the harmonic progression of the chant uses both. It uh, starts from E major, F F sharp minor, and then goes to uh, to E minor. So it both has the E minor and E major in it. So the mm -hmm. E minor with the with the G and the E major with the G sharp. And so he brings together these two pitches, like in. In you know, so it's sort of like it's kind of like how do you say contracting the harmonic information and 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 uh, I don't know what the word is like it's concentrated like concentrates it's the harmonic. It's almost like he's folding to. It's folding, yes, exactly, yes, yeah, exactly. It's like folding, and then then from this folded state, then it unfolds, and yeah. you get the explosion, right? Yeah. And it's uh, it's incredible. You know, I also see like see all these uh, relationships. Like remember, like the the. Um, the motor-driven uh, organ chord or whatever it is, yeah. like the, you know, the rising pitch kind of thing. That It's something like that that's happening there in Oladon, yeah. right? Like you have this, this, yeah, concentration, like this folded sound which then unfolds and just and explodes. And I was thinking of the motor chord, actually with something that's happening in the second movement, the um, this sort of a crashing sound at the end of the um, guitar shimmer section. Yes. Mm -hmm. Where he also goes into a completely different... Uh, Tonality, I don't know if it's that mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. um, that also has this sort of effect. It's completely, it's, uh, it's like a break in, in perspective. Yes. Also yes. very expertly done. Yes. Yeah, I mean, we haven't we haven't talked so much about about part two, right? Um, but yeah, there's like this, this beautiful um, fade out of the shimmering guitars yeah. into the uh, set song for Rosie section. That is an incredible yeah. transition. And it just comes just comes down to to just the drone from the the, yeah. the bagpipes or the Ilian pipes and the uh, and the fingerstyle acoustic guitar. 
and then on top uh, this is this is so funny like i mean we say like there's not much relationship between person to second side no i mean it's also the those themes right and on top of the set song for rosie you also get the electric like the muted electric guitar sound playing the it comes back there as well yeah so probably if we keep talking uh, for um, even more, then um, I probably this is going to probably going to be my favorite record after all. <laughs> <laughs> no, it it really is is wonderful, yeah, and and yeah, I mean I have to correct myself. I I do think that they actually played the whole whole Omadon in the in the nineteen eighty two tour, but there in nineteen eighty two they did two config two configurations of the same band, hmm. um, and. So there was an extra guitarist and vocalist in the first leg of the mm-hmm. tour, which was not the tour, not the band that I saw. I saw the band later that year in October, and I can't remember if they played the full Amadon when I mm-hmm. saw it, saw them, and I was I was I was just ten years old, mm-hmm. so how would I remember now? Probably, but there's I have a bootleg recording of that show, Essen '82. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to have that for some of my the gigs which were important to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, maybe I should also say that I think um, <clears throat> to me, like if you if you're hearing this and you're thinking about which version to get, I really think that um, it probably makes sense for this one to go back to the original vinyl, or to oh, the for sure, or maybe to the to the to the deluxe edition which came out later because I think um, Virgin really did a disservice to the piece with the first CDs they issued. Not only, I think it's shameful that they um, completely um, took out the artwork in the on the inside, and the, and mm-hmm. and there's no mention of any of the collaborators. We've talked about collaborations. Mm-hmm. How much of it was actually by the collaborators or not doesn't matter. But I think they should at least be included. They're not in there, and I think the the sound of the first CD issue is muffled and and doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. So for me, the actually rediscovery was um, the boxed version because that one is really beautiful even even though i don't have a quad setup i think it works nonetheless but the original vinyl i think is the one to get mm-hmm. and the new version um i'm not i think it's too loud but it's at least has more of the original it has it's closer to the original sound i think than than the cd version originally okay i don't i don't not so sure i don't remember that but the yeah the deluxe like the remix he made is is fine it just presents the material in a different in a completely different mm-hmm. way it has the like the release of tension happens in a different place. It actually ha- for me yeah. it happens uh, in the in the recapitulation in the in the middle after that that triplety solo mm-hmm. and goes back to the theme with the also with the African yeah. drums and the um, and the theme played on electric guitar. That's sort of like the release for me. That's where yeah. where I get the goosebumps on on that particular version. So I I, I agree that like if you want to have the real Armadon experience, you need to go to the very first vinyl edition yeah. and get that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit. It can you could say it's it's maybe frustrating that there are so many versions of these things, but at the same time, you could also say it's a blessing. Yeah, yeah. I've heard um, at least in the chronology, um, it's mentioned that one of the single releases, um, which is only three or four minutes short, yeah. is supposed to be very good. Um, I don't, I don't like it. Yeah, I haven't heard it's, it. it's like it's like a like a wacky edit mm-hmm. with with you know like skipping from one section to the other uh 
leaving out seven bars or something like okay. it doesn't even follow the, the the proper chord structure and stuff anymore. Well, it's so, save me so i mean you can i mean i i can i can give you an mp3 of yeah. it like but it's not really yeah. not really great <laughs> it's hard i mean it's hard to imagine condensing that into a single yeah format. i mean like yeah 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 that doesn't that doesn't make any sense that's it i guess right yeah i think so i mean at some point like once we've completed the whole discography we we can go back and maybe have a mammoth session talking about everything in sequence you know yes and we've also received some very interesting feedback um mm -hmm. for example for Hergis ridge i think it was really interesting to get feedback on youtube um which will make me go back to a lot of these albums again and it's things you said now um mm -hmm. i'll definitely listen to the to the to the grooves differently mm -hmm. the beats on this one mm -hmm. um yes okay thank so you very on, much Onto incantations. Yes. Thanks to you, listeners. Um, I mean, even if you weren't listening, we would be doing this. So <laughs> thank you for listening. And uh, see you next time.